You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, good morning. Today we are going to be finishing up Luke chapter 2. If you've been following along, you know we we went through Luke chapter 1, and we've gone through most of Luke chapter 2, and we're finishing it today. And if you've done the math, you can kind of figure out about how long it's going to take for us to get through the gospel of Luke. I think think we've been going at about, uh, you know, one chapter every three or four weeks, something like that. There's 24 chapters. Someone here is good at math. You'll figure it out. It's probably going to take us about a year, year and a half, something like that, which is actually not so bad. I, I I really love this particular gospel. Of all four of the gospels of Jesus Christ, Luke is my favorite. And uh, if you ever want to know why, we can talk about it. I I don't have enough time right now to explain just why I love this particular gospel. But it is is a wonderful gospel. And it's also very unique, especially in in part because of Luke chapter 1 and 2. In Luke chapter 1 and 2, we get a lot of details that we don't get in any of the other Gospels. We get a lot of details about the events leading up to the birth of Christ, and then uh, some details about his childhood, specifically shown in Luke chapter 2. The only other chapter of the Bible that tells us anything about the childhood of Jesus is Matthew chapter 2, and those details are, for the most part, different. That's the chapter where we find out about the Magi and the plot that Herod has to kill Jesus and the parents fleeing to Egypt and and the slaying of the innocents. All those details come from Matthew. And so Matthew chapter two, Luke chapter two, you combine those and you get everything we know about Jesus as a child, with most of it being about Jesus as a baby to toddler. So the story that we're going to look at today is a a -a one-of-a-kind story that actually tells about Jesus as as older than a toddler, but not a man yet. And it's everything we know about Jesus growing up from from baby to uh, adult. Everything we have is, is encompassed in this story that we're going to look at today at the end of Luke Before we do jump into the passage, you can start turning there to Luke chapter two, but before we jump into it, there's something I wanna say uh, to to give us a a right focus as we approach this passage. It's very easy for us as 21st century Westerners in the year 2021 to focus in on a particular element that isn't actually what we should be looking at. So we're gonna see in this story, Jesus and his parents, are they're, they're gonna become separated. And Jesus is going to be separated from his parents actually all day. And they won't notice until the end of the day. To us, that actually looks like really bad parenting because of the culture we're in. But at the culture that this is written in and the times that it is written in, it's actually very normal parenting. Kids would go all day without their parents knowing exactly what was going on with them. In fact, it's kind of similar to a different era that that America used to have, uh, maybe about 60 years ago, when kids could go all day and and come home for dinner and their parents didn't have any kind of device where they tracked where their kid was, there was no cell phones, there was nothing like that. And it's kind of like if you've ever watched Andy Griffith and, and followed Opie Taylor, he, he can just kind of go wherever he wants and come home for dinner. In fact, there's an episode where he doesn't come home for dinner, and that's when they get worried. Uh, but this is, this is a different culture. It's a different time. And we're not supposed to look at this and go, huh, Mary and Joseph, they're bad parents. So I want to say that before we jump in. Let's go ahead and jump in to Luke chapter 2. 
And before we get to the actual story that we're going to talk about, we're going to read a couple of verses that, that lead up to it, starting in Luke 2:39. It says this. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to their own town of Nazareth. All right, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, this is referencing the previous event that's recorded in this chapter where Mary and Joseph went to the temple to be purified 40 days after Jesus was born. And so after they've done everything according to the law, now they go back to Nazareth. Now, this is an important detail because it actually is something that is highlighted throughout Luke 1 and 2. Mary and Joseph are righteous people. They are followers of the law. They practice this religion. They are good Jews. Uh, It's probably why they were chosen to be the parents of the Messiah. It's something that we see all throughout chapters one and two, and we're gonna see it even again echoed in the story that we're gonna look at. They're good Jews. Luke could have just said, when they were done, they then returned to Nazareth. But instead, he says, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. So that's an important element of of the people we're dealing with. And then we get verse 40, which says, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The child grew. Everything we know about Jesus growing up is summarized in that verse. In fact, the story we're about to read is ultimately telling us, giving us an example of that point. That is the main point of what Luke is saying here. Jesus, as a child, was growing up, and it looked like this. He grew stronger, as as boys do. He went from toddler to young boy to teenager to man eventually. So he grew physically. He grew in wisdom. He grew in an actual understanding of the world. He saw things more correctly. He had more insight into what was right. And he grew in favor with God, meaning his actual relationship with the Lord God grew. The spiritual side of who he was grew. So when we see that and we consider who we're talking about, it's important for us to understand who he is. All right, we're talking about Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's God the Son. So he is God. God doesn't grow. God is not in process. God is all-knowing. He is fully developed. But humans do grow. They are in process. They are limited. And so somehow, some way, Jesus both fully God and fully man, 100% of both. He does both of those things in the incarnation. And we see that even here as a 12-year-old. He's limited as a human. He's unlimited as God. Somehow, someway, beyond our understanding, both of those things exist. And we're gonna see that play out even in this story. So let's go ahead and look at the story. It starts in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Remember what we already saw about Mary and Joseph? These are are good Jews. They keep the Passover feast every single year. This is one of six of the major feasts. It's, It's actually one of three feasts that everyone in Israel would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. 
This is the Passover feast. It goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. You can read all about it. It's one of the most significant events in the Hebrew calendar. They are being good Jews. They're going to Jerusalem. And it says they did this every year. Jesus is now 12. So we can do the math and we can assume this is Jesus' 13th time to observe Passover in Jerusalem. It doesn't tell us anything about his 12th time or his 11th time or his 10th time. So we can assume that all the times prior to this, and, and we're not gonna hear anything about the ones after, so we can also assume all the ones after this, fairly normal events took place, uh, meaning Jesus doesn't get separated from his parents. He, he goes home with his parents. That's probably the norm. This time is gonna be different. This particular event in the life of Jesus Christ growing up stands out. And it stands out for a variety of reasons. Now, I know many of you probably know this story about Jesus at the temple. You already know the, the details of this story. So I'm gonna ask those of you who know this story to do something. Pretend you don't know what's gonna happen next. Pretend you're reading this story for the very first time. You have no idea what's gonna happen next. All you know so far is that Jesus and his parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover. No big deal. Let's find out what's next, right? Verse 43, it says, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Every good story has conflict. Every good story has a problem. And suddenly the problem has, has presented itself. The parents are returning to Nazareth. The boy, Jesus, is still in Jerusalem. All right, even though we, we come from different cultures and different times, we can still recognize this is a problem. This is not gonna be good. There's going to be a conflict as the result of this, all right? Now, just for a little geography clarity, uh, Nazareth was, was a decent ways away from Jerusalem. If you take your hand, you can actually make a map of Israel and put Jerusalem right in the palm of your hand, right there, right in the middle, and then follow the line that it, you know, is created by your middle finger, and your ring finger, follow that up, pretend that that is the Jordan River. And before you get to the top, right about there, that's the Sea of Galilee. Nazareth is just southwest of the Sea of Galilee. So they're going all the way up there. Now on my hand, it doesn't look very far, but it's over a day's journey, over a day's journey walking by land. And they are going and their 12-year-old son is not with them. This is a problem. Right away, we have to ask the question, why? Why does Jesus not go with his parents? Like, what, what's the reason? Remember, we don't know yet. We don't know what he's about to do. So we're pretending we don't know. So why is he doing this? Why would he stay behind? Why is it that his parents don't know? Well, we would expect the, the story to then tell us. Let's find out what Jesus is doing next. But instead, keep, keep an eye on who the story does follow. <clears throat> In verse 44, it says, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. We don't know exactly how big the group was, but it must have been big enough that Jesus could, uh, could have slipped detection, like the, as in he could have, he could have, there could have been such a big crowd that the parents wouldn't notice whether or not he was there. There's a lot of people traveling from Jerusalem along that road but they don't notice where he is all day and they're fine with that, that's normal. And, and then sometime probably around dinner time, at the end of the day when all the kids would come back to their parents to eat dinner, Jesus is missing. 
and they search for him among people that it would make sense for him to be with, friends and relatives, and he's not with them. They've traveled about a day. So we can assume in the next verse that they're gonna travel another day, and this is what it says in verse 45, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So by this point, Jesus has been missing for two days, roughly. We don't know exactly how long it took for them to get back. They might have, they might have gone a bit faster uh, with the urgency of trying to find their son, but, but about two days, Jesus has been missing. They get back to Jerusalem, and now they're going to search for him. Now, did you notice the story is following Mary and Joseph? We still don't know what's going on with Jesus. We just know that he stayed behind. We still don't know why. We still don't know what he's doing. We know nothing. It's very strange. What is he doing? Why did he stay behind? Will his parents find him? Where are they going to search first? In verse 46, it says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So it takes them three days to finally check in the place that Jesus actually is, the temple. Meaning they searched a lot of other places first. Uh, I don't know exactly how much of Jerusalem Mary and Joseph searched, but I can imagine they searched most of it. Given that these are urgent parents trying to find a missing kid, they probably were making good time all day searching all over Jerusalem. And they searched for three days before they finally checked in the place that he actually was, the temple. So we know Mary and Joseph did not expect to find him in the temple. That was not the first place by any means that they would have expected to find him. And when they do find him, what is he doing? He's sitting there with the teachers. He's engaging with these teachers. Excuse me. He's engaging with these teachers. We can assume about the law. We can assume about the word of God. And it makes sense because who is he? He's the Messiah. He's God the Son. All of scripture is ultimately God breathed. He is God. So he would understand this. He knows what he's talking about. Even as a 12-year-old, we see the God within him showing. He's talking with these people. And just on what level is he actually able to engage them? The ver next verse will tell us more. In verse 47, it says, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He's amazing them with his knowledge. He's amazing them with his understanding of the word of God. Now, we still don't know why this is happening. We don't, we don't know why he didn't tell his parents that he needed to, to be there. We don't know why he's, he's engaging in conversation with these teachers. We don't really know the significance of this yet. It's still kind of strange. Not necessarily surprising because he's not a normal 12-year-old. He is God. But it's still kind of strange it's still the sort of thing that, that we would expect the parents to, to have a reaction when they find him. Maybe their reaction is relief. You know, they found, their, they found their son. He's still alive. Maybe they're very upset. He never told them he was going to go to the temple. He should have told them, right? What kind of reaction are they going to have? That's, that should be the thing we're wondering as we read the next verse. Verse 48, and it says, And when his parents saw him... They were astonished. 
Now that word in the English language, astonished, can carry a negative meaning and it can also carry a positive meaning. In fact, that word in the, the Greek language is the same word that is used in the previous verse when it says the teachers are amazed. So it could be that they are amazed in the same way, that they are just going, wow, look at our boy. But we have to read the context to see what is meant by their astonishment. It says, and his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Those last two words, great distress, tells us that this is not a positive kind of astonishment. The, the parents are not happy. Now, is Jesus in trouble? Is he going to be punished? No, they don't, they don't seem to say anything like that. In fact, Mary seems to show a great deal of wisdom here. She knows that her son is Christ the Lord. That is something that was revealed to her before he was even born, before he was even conceived. She knows who he is. She knows that he doesn't make mistakes. She's had 12 years of his life to observe that in him. And so now when he does something that seems very contrary to being a child under the household of his parents, to be a child who is in submission to his parents, it seems what he's done is contrary to that. And instead of Mary saying, okay, you finally messed up, we can finally punish you, she asks him, why? Why, why did you do this to us? I need to understand. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't line up. And for those of us who are reading this story, we, we should be asking the same question. It's not quite lining up. Why would Jesus, who's perfect, do this? When it's clear that his parents had a different expectation, why didn't he do what his parents wanted? <clears throat> well, we're finally gonna get the answer provided by Jesus himself. And these are the very first words spoken by Jesus that make it into the Bible. These are the only words spoken by Jesus as a child that make it into the Bible. And he says this in verse 49. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Why were you looking for me? Do you not know I'm supposed to be here? Now, if we read that first sentence, it can come across kind of strange. Why were you looking for me? Well, they're his parents. Of course, they're gonna look for him. He's not, he's not saying you shouldn't look for me. He's saying you should know where I am. You should have known that I would be in the temple. It's kind of like if you have a spot in your house where you keep your car keys, maybe on a hook or something like that. When you need to use your car, that should be the, search, the first place that you look for them. The very first place you go to find your car keys. If you look all over your house for your car keys, but don't look there, and then you decide to finally look there, and you, and you tell someone else in your family, hey, I finally found them. It's like, well, did you look there first? No. That's what Jesus is saying. You should have looked here first. This is the only place that makes sense for me to be. This is where I'm supposed to be. Don't you know that? Which obviously they don't know that. But he's treating them like they should know. Like they should understand this thing that he uniquely understands. That's one of the things that's very clear in this story. Jesus has a unique understanding of things that none of the other characters in the story seem to understand. Why? Because he is God. Because his understanding is far greater than even his parents. Even as a 12-year-old, he has greater understanding of the things of God. 
So what is he telling his parents here? When he says, I'm supposed to be in the, the temple. I'm supposed to be in my father's house. Well, what he's telling them is the first and primary purpose of my life is to be in submission to God the Father. That's why I'm here. That's the, the primary purpose of my life. That is, where I, I am, that is why I was brought to this earth. That is why the Father sent me to this earth, to be in submission to him. And we're gonna see that continue on all throughout the life of Christ, even to the point where he is in the garden on his knees, weeping and saying, not my will, but yours be done. Throughout his entire life, he models this kind of submission to the Father. No matter what the culture says, no matter what the world around him says, no matter everything else, there's nothing that is a higher authority to Jesus than God the Father. Even when it seems strange, even when it seems to go against what would be normal. So we, we have to ask the question, okay, so does this mean he's like liberated? from his parents? Does he, is he no longer under their authority? He's telling them, I'm supposed to be in submission to my father. Remember what Mary said, your father and I, the authorities in your life, we've been searching for you in great distress. And he's like, actually, my father is the one I'm supposed to follow. So is he no longer in submission to them? Well, the story will, will tell us Let's continue reading. It'll also tell us whether or not Mary and Joseph even understand what's going on. In verse 50, it says, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to, to them. And then 51, it says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Do you notice that word submissive? Jesus, who is, yes, only a 12-year-old, but clearly understands things better than his parents. He's not normal. It's not normal for 12-year-olds to understand things better than their parents. But he does. And yet he continues to submit to the authority placed in his life by God, his parents. Now, there's a very obvious application here. And then there's also a not-so-obvious application the obvious application is for children and for parents. If Jesus can submit to his imperfect parents while he perfectly understands the things of God better than even they do, shouldn't our children, shouldn't the children of, of the church continue to submit to their parents? If Jesus can model that example, shouldn't we follow what the Bible teaches about the relationship between children and parents, not just modeled here, but explained in both the Old and the New Testament? So that's, that's one application. Another application is for parents. Even though Jesus submits to his imperfect parents, he still does. But there is one instance where obviously in this story, he doesn't. When what his parents want and what God the Father wants are two different things. In that instance, he submits to the Father. So what are, what are parents being shown here? Most 12-year-olds are not gonna be able to discern this from this. So parents are to raise up their children, how? In a way that points them to the Father's will. Most children aren't gonna be like a 12-year-old Jesus who know right from wrong. Parents are called to raise up their children as unto the Lord. That is a directive throughout scripture. So that's, that's the obvious application for parents and for children. The not so obvious application is one that's actually for all of us. Who is Jesus in 
total submission to. He's in submission to the Father. That is what should be true for us, the body of Christ. Above all else, above all authorities in this life, above all distractions in this life, above all purposes that we might think are important, we need to be following God. Now that's a, that's a pretty basic message. We all know that's true, but is that actually true? Is that actually something that's true in your life? Is God first in your life? Is there any authority in your life that can supersede God? Jesus models that God the Father is the ultimate purpose, the primary authority that we must submit to. But he also models that even though we are to submit to the Father, that doesn't mean we don't submit to the other authorities that are in our life. And the Bible actually outlines for us quite a few relationships of authority and submission, not just in this story, but throughout, again, the Old Testament and the New. The Bible tells us about the relationship between government and citizens, where citizens are to submit to the government. It tells us about the relationship between husbands and wives, where wives are to submit to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters, or in our vernacular, workers to bosses. There are all these relationships throughout scripture, even people who go to church to the leadership, the elders of the church, the congregation to the elders. All these relationships throughout scripture that are shown to us of of submission and authority. And everything I've just said, the world around us hates. Everything I've said about submission and authority, the world around us would hear those relationships and call that bad. And yet it's outlined for us in the Bible and it's exemplified for us even by Jesus Christ submitting to his appearance in spite of the fact that he knows better. So when we consider all these relationships that that have authority perhaps in our lives, we are to submit to them just so long as they are not against what the Father, what submitting to the Father looks like. I think that that our world is, is teaching a very different message. It wants to turn every relationship upside down. It wants to teach kids that they know better than their parents. It wants to teach our culture that, that children in, are inherently more wise than grown-ups. We have to be the, the church that, that stands by what the word of God teaches, stands with the example of Jesus Christ. The final verse here is verse 52, and it says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You remember at the beginning of this story, we saw very similar wording, very, very similar words of Jesus grew in strength and wisdom and in favor of God. And here we see he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. That's what this story is about. What is it like for Jesus to grow up? Well, he grows in all the right ways. It's the model example. And how did he do it? Well, he did it ultimately by submitting to the authority of God the Father, but also by submitting to the authority of his parents. We're called to be that kind of people. 